0: The kingdom of God, the state, murder, capital punishment, war, and pacifism. And I want to try and do this uh, fairly quickly. Good luck, right? Romans 13, to 7 Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment and and. I have a, in my notes, I circle that with a question mark. This is the way I read the Bible. I try and ask questions of the text that help me see what's actually being said. When he says those who resist the government will incur judgment, does he mean, does he mean judgment from government? Because that's what he's going to go on to talk about. Does he mean judgment from God? Or does he mean judgment from God? by a governmental authority because those are all very different things and he hasn't said yet which he's talking about so verse 2 therefore whoever resists the authorities resists what god has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad so that makes you think the judgment that he's talking about comes from the rulers Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not, and then these words are, are a little bit striking. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, that's the, whoever the leader is. For he is the servant of God, an avenger. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Which is make, makes me think that when he talks about facing judgment, he's talking about the judgment of God via those whom God has placed in authority. Five. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. Now, it's God's wrath that he talks about. But also for the sake of conscience. Conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. It's quite a text, and I mean, it raises just a lot of questions, uh, Paul deals with the role of government in today's fallen world. He says it's appointed by God. Uh, he says government has been divinely appointed to serve those who do good. That's for a And to judge those who are wicked. That's 4B. And, and And Paul's opening statements make it plain that The Christian isn't just a citizen of one kingdom, he seeks one kingdom first, but he's not just a citizen of one kingdom, but he's a citizen of two kingdoms, and so he's to be subject to governing authorities. That's verses 1 and 2. It seems those are at least some of the basic building blocks of that text. Those points seem pretty obvious. You can probably pull me down a little bit. I think I'm a little bit loud. Am I a little bit loud? I I feel like I'm ringing. Maybe it's just in my head, eh? Okay. But the text isn't simple, for sure. Um, There are issues that are packed into those verses. What about capital punishment? What about pacifism? The idea that it's always wrong to go to war. How shall we respond when our government... Calls. I mean, that hasn't happened really much in, in our country, but it happens globally when government calls people to go to war. What about the Christian's responsibility if there's an immoral, God-defying government? Then who do you obey? Do you obey Caesar? Do you obey God? Both those are the things, all of those things seem to me to come bubbling up out of this text. I'm not claiming to be a know-it-all with all the answers. Here's how I would sort this text out and try and deal with it, okay? My humble opinion. Point number one, on the whole, the scriptural position, okay, now, the broad the broad principle. There are some exceptions I'll talk about, but I'm talking now about the big, the big picture here. Scriptural position is that Christians obey their governmental authorities with very rare exceptions. It seems clear, one and two, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There aren't any qualifications yet there. For there is no authority except from God. Again, a pretty blanket statement. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Another blanket statement. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. If, if, in case we forget, just bear in mind that those absolute statements, the Holy Spirit works through the pen of Paul making those kinds of bold pronouncements, while Nero is burning Christians at the stake in Rome. That's the context where Paul says, let every person be subject to the authorities. Like, that's mind-boggling to me. Verse 1 contains the absolutes. Obedience is required, not just by some people, but apparently by every person. So so the call to obey earthly authorities isn't limited to the authorities you voted for or you agree with. Every person isn't required to agree with governmental authorities. We're simply called to obey earthly authorities. Every person. I'll talk more about that in a minute. The second absolute is also in that opening verse. The reason every person is to obey his or her government is there is, verse 2, no authority except from God. You have to get your head around that. It's quite important. The statement are earthly authorities, the earthly authorities are not just a human invention. If you look at governmental authorities and you just see human politics involved and a bunch of administrative red tape, you're you're not going to see what God wants you to see. Paul says, God has placed, the Spirit says, inspiring Paul. God says, inspiring Paul, God has placed these earthly powers over us and he wants us to see them as an extension of his hand. And remember, the Apostles Paul isn't telling us to obey any particular form of government. You're reading the words of a man who never lived in a democracy, right? Paul lived under an emperor who executed those who didn't worship him. Most of the world, most of the world doesn't share our political heritage. So we mustn't think Paul is just talking about obeying certain forms of government that we appreciate that's important because wow well, we can always justify our disobedience to our leaders almost always we can think we're only called to submit to good government not bad think of the elections coming up here the states in democracies you know who you like who you don't like who would be someone god would want and who wouldn't be someone god we've all got our ideas and Paul says, that that's great. I'm not calling you to submit to the one you vote for. If you say you just submit to good government and not bad, it's only a short step from that to defining good government as that which does what we think it ought to do. And of course, no government does what everybody wants. We couldn't afford that. So those are the broad principles. Point number two. And I want you to try and make this clear. Government must be disobeyed when it compels. That's the important word. Circle that word, compels us to turn from the lordship of Christ. I, I worded that very important because I think it's what the scriptures teach. Christians must reject the authority of any kind of government when it compels their disobedience to Christ. I don't mean when it does things contrary to Christ or when it allows things that are contrary to Christ. That's a very important distinction. Examples abound. Let me, um, our government allows for same-sex marriage. So far, the government's never come to me and said, Don, you have to divorce your wife and you have to marry a same-sex spouse. That would be compelling, right? Not allowing, it would be forcing. My government, unfortunately, allows abortions, even helps fund them. But it doesn't, to my knowledge, compel all women over 35 to abort their pre-born children. That's compelling. Do you see the difference? When government allows for things that are clearly contrary to God's word, Christians should voice their concern. They should marshal every form of protest. They should take all means that are available to advance the truth and shine the light. But when government compels disobedience to God's authority, and it will one day, then Christians have to do two things. The first isn't hard. The second is. Christians have to do two things. They have to reject that earthly authority willingly and they have to, without retaliation, suffer the consequences of the state. Do you see those two things? Reject the authority when it compels you to do unchristian things and then without retaliation accept the consequences. You'll be punished for that retaliation. I think there are some... Pastor Don, where are you getting this stuff? Believe me, if this is just my theory, you don't have to listen. I think, I think there are some patterns that hint at what I just said. Acts chapter 4, 13 to 20. Is that in your notes? Okay. Acts 4, 13 to 20 Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Okay, it, it. This is obviously something spectacular. 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so they called them. Now they can bring them back. And they charged them. This is not. This is compelling, okay? This is compelling. They charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What do they do? Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. This is complicated. That's what they're saying. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. We cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. So here we have exactly the situation I was describing. Here we have the governing authorities over them at this time demanding the apostles never to speak of Jesus. Clearly that's not an option. We're commanded, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So it's not an option for any of us never to speak of Jesus. Notice how they commit two things. They commit to disobey the government. That's what I said. And yet they submit to its judgment at the same time. But Peter and John answered them, 19 and 20, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you judge. You're, you're, you're going to judge us here. We're under your authority. We cannot but speak what we have seen. This is what we're going to do. <laughs> you guys do what you have to do. So they disobey their leaders, but they submit to their authority at the same time. That's the important point. They disobey them, but they recognize you can judge us. We're, we're, not, we're not running away. That's, that's key, I think. Point number three, because we've got a lot of turf to cover. The purpose of government is to serve the good and to punish the bad. Three and four of Romans 13. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So if earthly government is from God, that seems to be what Paul is constantly repeating here. Uh, what, what, what is it for? What should government do as a, verse 4, servant of God? And, and Paul outlines two things. First, government will serve those who are good. Of course, government expands and grows. There would have been no concept of the services of government in Paul's mind that we would enjoy in a land like Canada. Government serves, serves those who are good. The Apostle Peter outlines this from the Christian's point of view in 1 Peter 2, 1 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Then this, 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution Fear God, honor the emperor, godless emperor, to boot. Look at, look at Paul's words to Timothy in First in, in Timothy 2, 1 to 3. We read these usually at prayer meetings. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings, all who are in high positions... That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly, dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So as people do good, honor those in authority, pray for them, support them as much as possible. Conditions are created for peace, he says, for quietness and this lack of discord Here's the point it makes it easier for the church to do its work for the gospel to be spread. Of course it doesn't always doesn't always happen and that should be a constant prayerful source of concern for the church globally we should be praying for the church. But the purpose of earthly government isn't just to serve the good it's to punish the wicked. Paul's strongest words on that point are in the last part of Romans 13. When you get to verse 4, he says, But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, this is whatever leader, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. He does not bear the sword. I wish that wasn't in there. Everyone in Paul's world knew what a sword was all about. I mean, soldiers carried swords the way soldiers might carry guns. And they used it to punish, and they used it to kill. You know the story. Peter cut off the servant of the high priest, his ear. Remember the servant's name? Malchus. Peter cut off Malchus's ear, but he wasn't aiming for his ear. He was going for his head. That's just what happened. We'll look as we close at some of the tricky issues coming out of that, those verses, that fourth verse. That's the hard verse. But the main point now, big picture, whether the government is... Responding to good behavior or bad, we Christians are to see God at work in government. In other words, we never look at earthly authorities as they are just in themselves. That's the tendency. Read the editorials in the newspapers, get the witty little things that come on Instagram, and you get all sorts of stuff about leaders, both sides of the border and around the world. But, but we're, we don't look at authorities just in themselves. However imperfect they may be, we always see something of God's authority and God's plan behind them. So, so we don't just respond to them as though they are merely men or women. We see all authorities, even very unchristian ones, as being set there. Paul says it, verses 1 and 2. Like it or not, understand it or not, we see them all placed there by God. Now the hard part, point number four. Romans 13 must be interpreted within its specific context. Context is the important word as we compare it with other texts. I want to look as we wrap up at two difficult issues. And we'll try and put them into the context of the Scriptures and our text from Romans specifically. The issues are capital punishment and pacifism. Hard questions. And I'm not claiming to have all the answers, but I think we can make some sense of these things when we see the chain of thought in Romans 12 going into 13. That's, that to me is an important point. If you look at the original manuscripts, you don't have, I'm grateful that we do, they help in the study of the Bible, but you don't have verses, and you don't have chapters. So whatever book you're reading, it would be just a monolithic structure, just sentence after sentence after sentence. What that means is, the chapter we're looking at tonight, the opening of chapter 13, it only looks like a brand new chapter. Really, Paul is just continuing the thread of the argument that he started in Romans 12, 18, and 19. Look at those verses just for a minute, and I think they'll help understand what's happening in Romans 13. Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. All right. And then these words. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You'll you'll be mistreated. You'll be wronged. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So looking carefully there, you can see a couple of things. Never avenge yourselves, verse 18. And, And as soon as you read that, at least for me, my mind immediately goes to the words of Jesus. Matthew 5, 38, 39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right, so you put that Romans 12, 18, 19, you link it up with the words of Jesus. Christians must never take revenge for wrongs suffered personally. I mean, which is, which is the other cheek? Well, it's the one that has not yet been struck. And Jesus' very words make it clear that he's dealing with someone who has been struck, slapped. I've been slapped. Jesus says, don't, don't slap back. Don't do that. That's the message. When I am personally wronged, he's not talking about government here. Jesus is talking about disciples. As they live in God's kingdom and mix with society, you will be mistreated. When I've been struck, I don't strike back. That's the message. When I am personally wronged, it's not up to me to take vengeance. A response of violence in the face of personal violence suffered is not an option for a Christian. But why am I not to take revenge into my own hands? Why? Paul tells us, we read it, 1219. Never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How how does God take vengeance on the wrongdoer? Well, he'll do it when Jesus comes again, for sure. All wrongs will be righted. All sin will be judged. But that's not all the Bible says about how God takes vengeance on wrongdoers. That's the theme Paul launches into in the, the very next section of his letter of Romans. Romans 13, 4. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the earthly authority, does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, here's what I'm saying. We see these two streams in biblical teaching, and you can't mix them up because the context is different. One relates to government and governmental authorities as agents of, of vengeance of God. The other re- relates to just, I suffer wrong personally. Someone wrongs me. The illustration of Jesus they strike you on the cheek. Don't strike back. Don't take vengeance. That's not up to you. Don't do that. As a Christian, I never personally take vengeance into my own hands for a wrong suffered. It's up to God to punish wrongdoers in this world, not not me. One of the ways God has decided to punish wrongdoers is to punish them right here and right now. And that's why the New Testament makes this distinction between turning the other cheek when I've been personally wronged, and that's not the same as turning a blind eye to injustice under the law. Those are two different things. Whether we're comfortable with it or not, Paul says that God has given some people the sword, that's the word he uses, to execute justice. And judgment. So God uses government to take revenge on the wicked. That, that's what Paul says. To what extent? And now you get down to the nitty-gritty. Worship means back to thinking, when is this guy ever going to stop talking? We're not going to have any time to. Do you want me to keep going just for a little bit? Okay. Thanks for humoring me with that enthusiastic response. To what extent can government use the sword of judgment? It's a hard call. It's a hard call. I think, again, we're given some clues in the biblical text. I would Is Genesis 9, 5, and 6 in your notes? And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man, those are the important words. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man, this is not something God's doing. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And I know that verse gets overused sometimes. I get it, especially in debates on capital punishment. I'm choosing it because it makes at least one point really clear. The point is, if a, if a man sheds another man's blood, by a man, this person's blood will be shed. And it fits remarkably well, I think, with what Paul says in Romans thirteen four. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is a servant of God. So God doesn't do this directly. it's, It's governmental authority. He is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the parallel idea, Genesis 9, Romans 13, is God uses human beings to execute his judgment and his wrath. He judges, but not directly. He does it indirectly. He chooses mediated vengeance on those who take human life. Here's what I'm saying. People ask me all the time, Pastor Don, where do you stand on capital punishment? And I say, yes. To me, I would say this. I would say that at least, at least the Bible allows for capital punishment when a life has been taken. In other words, what I'm saying is I don't think all killing is forbidden in the scriptures. So it's been God's plan, right from Genesis through Romans, to delegate the judicial use of the sword. Those aren't my words. That's, that's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. To take vengeance on wrongdoers. God commanded it directly under the Old Testament theocracy. I know we don't live under a theocracy anymore. And God delegates it indirectly under governmental authority in the church age. So I think the scriptures allow for capital punishment. I still think Christians should weep over capital punishment. it's 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 a tension in my own mind. I don't think you can make a biblical case and say it's just not allowed because, and then this is what they do, they rip those words of Jesus out of context. When someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Jesus isn't talking about government in those verses. He's talking about how you function as a Christian in society when you are personally wronged. You don't take vengeance. That's not the same as Romans 13. There's another issue. War and pacifism. How shall we submit to authorities if called to bear arms? Is the killing of war the same as the killing of murder? And people think that's an easy answer, and it's not an easy answer. It's a hard subject. Are both of those things forbidden in the scripture? That too is a really hard question. It seems to me awkward to apply the command, you shall not kill, which really means you shall not murder. It seems awkward to apply it right across the board to all killing, because you find people like King Saul in the Old Testament God punishes him because he refused to kill his enemies the way God commanded him to. So that's hard to figure out. Here's the other thing. Jesus never hesitated to tell people, all sorts of people, that they needed to leave their old life behind if they wanted to follow him. Think about think about different occasions. He told a woman that she could no longer live with the man she lived with. You've had five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. That can't go on. He told a crooked tax collector, Matthew, that he needed to repay, Zacchaeus, sorry, needed to repay all those whom he had cheated He told it a covetous rich man that he needed to leave his riches behind if he wanted to follow him in discipleship. But go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there are at least three encounters that Jesus has with soldiers, military people. And he never once told it any of them they needed to leave military service if they were going to follow him. That's at least something that ought to make us say, well, that's interesting. I wonder why Jesus didn't see some kind of moral compromise with a disciple following him in that kind of life. And so you seem to have the same distinction between personal vengeance and violence in our relationships, which is forbidden, and the role of the sword in hands of the state in times of execution of law and in times of war. There just seems to be a division somehow in the scriptures. And I'm not sure I've got it all sorted out, but I know this, it's very hard to just make one blanket rule and make it work in every situation like that. I think people get, they want to be dogmatic and they tend to get oversimplistic. Please understand me. I'm not saying that all wars are justifiable. And I'm not saying any of them are good. I'm certainly not saying there couldn't be times when a Christian in good conscience might have to say, no, I can't do that. Only God knows the heart. All I'm trying to do at this point is mark out what I feel is the necessary distinction. The whole goal of tonight, there's a necessary distinction between personal vengeance, striking back, which is forbidden, and how God has appointed government with a sword to execute his judgment and wrath on wrongdoers. And that's that's the issue that I think Paul tries to sort out in that in that text. So no doubt you'll get asked cuz it's just one of those things people always ask. What's your view on capital punishment? What's your view on pacifism? And I and I I just think at least at least we ought to be able to say, you know, I can't paint in all the details, but if you want me just to paint the background in big, broad strokes, I think the Bible talks about two things. An absolutely non-violent approach for Christian people in their personal relationships in terms of vengeance. And a very stern role that God seems to give government to execute, to use the sword in times that it deems appropriate. And 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 if you don't keep those two things separate, then you can't make sense of any of the scriptures. Did I just fuddle up your thinking more? Let's pray.